Okay, so welcome to the final portion of this event. Um, I'm, I'm rethinking this whole idea. <laughs> I, I, we usually do this in a private studio. Don't worry about where it. You're, no one's you're, watching. You're a grown-up. You're great at that. Uh, yeah, that's arguable. But um, this is actually maybe a, a fun challenge, right? Like to, to do this in front of an audience. Everyone's watching. So I guess what I'm going to do is pretend no one's there. And we'll just do this. And like I'll just keep playing to the crowd and it'll yeah. be fine. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so everyone in this room is going to kind of get to witness uh, the way we do, we, the way we shoot these episodes. So um, if you're just joining us for the main presentation, um, I'll give you a little explanation then we're going to start. I'll give you a little bit of instruction as well. But uh, Behind the Brand is a show for entrepreneurs, uh, small business owners, and, and the likes. It's really a show about the stories uh, behind the people who are successful. Um, who are making great work and doing great things. And we like to pull back the curtain and reveal like, who's doing it and how they do it and, and what they do. Except with me, because I don't play that way. Well, the, the, time, the ones we've done before, I've resisted every single time you've wanted me to do that. I don't feel that way. I feel like you know, I've gotten what I want out of it. Like, you know, but I, I'm way more interested in what people can do with the insight than me somehow sharing some up-close-and-personal story. Well, I mean, I think we want a, a little we'll bit see. of both. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we will. Um, so, uh, Andy, can you run that clip just so people can get a, a flavor for what this is? The, bull, the bullfighting clip again? Uh, it's a little different version, I think. Let's All see. right. This is the, the same thing, only different. You're not impressed by that? I'm, I think you're crazy. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Let's go check out our next story. What's up, everybody? It's Gary Bay, Nerd Chuck. Hi, I'm Ariana Huffington. I'm Tony Robbins. I'm John Paul DeGioia. I want to just look right in the camera and say that one more time. I'm Simon Sinek, and you're watching Behind the Brand. Hi, I'm Brian Elliott, here with special guest Seth Godin. Hey, I'm Jessica Beale, and you're watching Behind the Brand. Thank this you. is where you're supposed to applaud. I should have thought of one of those people with the applause sign. Like it That's me. On Fallon. It's all good. Okay, so what we're going to do is uh, we'll do a cold open. So you'll look into this lens first and you'll say, introduce yourself. And then with enthusiasm, like you're excited to be here. And you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Okay. <laughs> hey, it's Seth. And you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Good, let's do one more for safety. No. <laughs> no, let's do it live. No, that's, that's the way I would usually do it if we were in a studio. Yeah, but we're not in a studio. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so now I'm, I'm going to look into this lens. Difficult. It's okay, I love it, I love it. This must be what Saturday Night Live is like. Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with best-selling author and teacher Seth Godin. Seth, welcome back. It's a pleasure, always. This is a little different format. We're doing this in front of a live studio audience. And um, I couldn't be more terrified, but I'm really happy that you've agreed to come back um, in spite of all of our previous interviews. And, you know, this is just, I guess now it's, it's a conversation between you and me, and, and I have lots of questions. In fact, uh, I couldn't sleep last night because I, uh -oh. I was editing and auditing. Um, I have several questions, but for the sake of everyone here and for me personally, um, can you break down work that matters? You talk about work that matters a lot. What is work that matters? What's work that doesn't matter? Work that doesn't matter is something we did to make a nickel. Work that doesn't matter is something we did to score points on somebody else. Work that doesn't matter is something that our boss said we had to do, but we didn't believe in. So work that matters is something we would miss if you didn't do it. It's something where you can point to it a week or a year later and say, I'm glad I did that. Work that matters leaves a trail behind that we're proud of. And if more of us did work that matters, it can't help but make it better for everybody. So what if we're not currently doing that work, if we're tied to a paycheck or whatever our excuse or reason, what if we're not doing that? How do we, how can we change or make change, affect change where we are, sort of, you know, stand where you are, so to speak? I think it's, we got to begin with the paycheck myth. So I was, I went to Bareilly, India, which is in the center of India. I then drove to a little village, no electricity, 300 people live there. Uh, I met a uh, a yogi who had bought a D-Light solar lantern, and I wanted to understand why he had bought the lantern. So here's a man who all of his possessions fit into one rollerboard suitcase if he had one. Where's his paycheck? He doesn't have a paycheck. But the village counts on this man to lead them, to connect them, to tell them stories that create value. That's why he bought the solar lantern. He bought the solar lantern, he said, so we could sit around at night, wait for it to break because it was a mystery. He wanted to understand what change this was going to make in his community. So if this man can do that, how is it that somebody who's living in Chicago or wherever can't? Of course there have been bad breaks, and of course the world isn't fair, and of course you're in debt, and of course we need more resources. That's a given. But in this moment of time where we live, it's certainly possible to do, treat other people with dignity to open doors for people, to do things not just so that you get reciprocated, to raise the bar, to tell a story that you're proud of. You can do all those things and still get the same paycheck. That for everybody who's got a job they hate, there's 100 people who want that job. It's not the job, I, maybe if you work in a slaughterhouse, but it's not the job, it's the way you approach it and the way you think about what you could accomplish if you wanted. So you've done a lot of big things recently, new things. Uh, you asked me the question a few years ago, you know, when's the last time you've done something for the first time? Yeah. Which I think is a terrific question. Um, so I sort of already have that answer. I want to maybe be a little bit more reflective with this question and ask, can you think of a time in your career, in your life, where there's been this pivotal moment where you've had this, you know, either aha moment or it was a big failure and it changed the trajectory of 
what you thought was correct and then you went a completely different direction? Well, if it doesn't happen often, I'm not trying hard enough. I've actually, I actually set out to have that feeling. And I learned this the hard way, and I'm really fortunate that I learned it, but in 1993, and that's why I didn't start a search engine, and that's why I didn't start eBay, and that's why... I mean, I was there. I didn't do any of those things, because I didn't get it. And it happened fast enough that I could actually feel the feeling in my head when it shifted. Oh, now I get it. And that feeling, what does it sound like when you change your mind? That feeling is something we can seek out. Most people do the opposite. Most people avoid it at all costs, particularly in things like politics, particularly in things that are happening in public, particularly things having to do with cultural mores. They, they don't want ever, because that feels like they were wrong, like they're some sort of weak flip-flopper. But flip-flopping is another word for resilience. It's another word for being aware of how the world is. Every great scientist, Einstein was wrong, 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 and then one day he was right. So, that's a practice. And it happens to me, you know, once a week, once a month. It happens to me about projects. It happens to me about people. It happens to me about choices. For 30 years, I got on an airplane every 10 to 20 days to go somewhere. What a privilege to do this work. And about five months ago, I got sick again, and I said, you know what? Enough. And all of a sudden, Every single time I'm about to get an airplane, it feels totally different, it looks totally different, I've changed my mind. And who knows how long that will be true, but I think it's going to be true for a long time to come. And that means I'm devoting my energy to something other than getting on another airplane, which I need to turn into something really powerful and energizing for me and for others. That's a big shift to do when you're 57 years old. I'm thrilled to be able to do it. I keep looking for those. So it sounds like what you're saying is if you have these non-negotiables or like, I can't tolerate this anymore, then you have to have the discipline to not do it, and then other options will appear? Is that Well, how that works? I don't even think it's as bad as hitting your head against the wall at high speed. I think it's, there's something else I should be doing. Like, I know how to type. I know how to write. I could write another book. There are publishers who would like me to write another book, but it's better for me to build an online workshop because that workshop might not touch as many people as a book, but it's going to go deep. That was a big shift. There's nothing wrong with writing a book, having people want to read it, getting paid to do it. It's thrilling. Yeah. But you have to say, I can't do that anymore if I want to do this because the plate can't hold everything. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit more. Um, regardless of age, you know, you're just coming out of college or you're someone with more experience, um, how, how would you advise finding your passion, right? You, maybe you think, I'm good at this, but I'm not passionate about it, or right. the opposite is true, right? Like, yeah. Um, this is a real topic for me, the yeah. passion thing. Okay. It's Let's nonsense. It. <laughs> Just nonsense. That 
Professionals, happy, productive, engaged professionals make the decision to be passionate about what they do as opposed to doing what they are passionate about. Because you can choose to find in the texture of the work you do that thing that will cause growth and connection and mattering. If you do that, if you make that decision when you're 20, you're never going to have the passion problem for the rest of your life. On the other hand, if you say, and you know, I know plenty of teenagers and, and recent teenagers who say, I love playing soccer in, in high school, or I love music, so I want to be, that's my passion. Yeah, well, then they spend the next 10 years being a clerk at a record company, or the next 10 years selling tickets to a soccer tournament. That's not their passion. The work that they do all day has nothing to do with soccer or music. They just think it does. If instead they could say, my passion is engaging with other human beings and making their eyes light up. My passion is opening doors for people who deserve to have a door open for them. The number of ways that you can be productive at that is infinite. I guess what I'm getting at is, I, I want to hear more about it, is um, sometimes you don't know it when you're so close to it, right? Of course. And so is there, is there an exercise, is there a practice? I mean, other than just doing it and like process of elimination, like, oh, I didn't like that so much, or oh, that was awesome, or is there a process, something that we can kind of codify or like a, um, a routine that we can practice to, to vet some of these ideas, to know that, yeah, this should be my path, or this shouldn't, like, you talk about your eyes lighting up, right, or your heart lighting up, P perhaps those are signals. Yeah, but it's, I think, you're still getting caught up on the domain thing. So I wrote, and I don't remember the details, it wasn't too long ago, about a woman who has sold more coffee for 7-Eleven than any other living human being. That for 40 years, she's been behind the counter selling coffee at a 7-Eleven. And it's easy to say, well, that's stupid. But, uh-oh, okay. It's not stupid, it's her commitment. Because these, these are her people, this is her family. This is her practice. She chops wood, she carries water, she does the work. The narrative about the work is always a choice. Narrative is always a choice. And there's a, a Buddhist term, dukkha. And dukkha is the suffering when what is happening and our narrative don't match. And the way to solve the problem is not to change what we're doing, but to change our narrative. Because if we change our narrative, then the work we're doing and this woman, in this case, you see people who are happy to see you. You work indoors. You are able to do something that's steady. You're able to give a smile to 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 people. Maybe all day, no one else is going to treat them as well as you treated them. What a privilege. That's enough. And so, yes, we sometimes find ourselves in grinds, in places where there's pressure or stress or uh, harassment or abuse. And we should get out of them. I'm not pampering over any of that. But what privileged people have done is made up all this storytelling that you just don't hear from people who live without privilege. They don't have time or resources to whine about it. They're just going to do what they do and make it their work. One of my favorite books of yours, I, well, it's hard to choose. Thank you. Um, Lynchpin. So you're sort of alluding to becoming a lynchpin. You talked in that book about you know we're all geniuses, and 
we're also all not going to be the best, whether it's Michael Jordan at basketball or whatever, um, but that we can be the best at what we do in our spot. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think it's a very important topic. Still relevant right now. Yeah. The in Scientific Management, uh, a book written around the time of Henry Ford, created this huge mythology of an engineered industrial world where things, everything is like sports. There's a winner, there's a loser, there's a score, there's efficiency, there's RBIs, it's all the stats thing. And so we have seduced ourselves into thinking that the doctor who's the best is the one who did the best on the test. That the restaurant that's the best is the one that has the most Michelin stars, and on and on and on. And that's a convenient narrative for industrialists and bosses. Because if, the, if you're measuring something and your employees believe that that thing is the most important thing, it's going to go up, right? But in fact, almost everybody who works in the privileged world isn't just a cheap human machine, right? That as soon as it could be done by a machine, we bought a machine to do it. That what's left is all this soft stuff that's the core stuff. So soft skills aren't an afterthought. Soft skills are what we pay for. Soft skills are the only difference between a $9 restaurant and a $90 restaurant. The only difference between a $2,000 surgery and a $20,000 surgery. And soft skills get short shrift because we say, well, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's all that matters. So let's, let's list off some of these soft skills that you're talking about that are become, I, you know, I think this model's completely flipped on its ear, right? Flipped on its head. So what used to be important or valued before is a college degree, and now it's become these right. skills. Let's list a few of them that you think are critical at the top, maybe top five, top ten. Well, so let me do a, a short riff from my late friend Zig Ziglar. Before the internet, he said, what if there was this magical computer that knew everything about everyone and their work, like LinkedIn? And what if you could say to that person, that computer, everything that you're looking for in a boss or an employee or a spouse or a best friend? What would you want, right? And the list, he used to do it in front of thousands of people. I've watched him do it several times. The list is always the same. I'd want someone who's honest and loyal and hardworking. I'd want someone who's perceptive and has a sense of humor and has emotional intelligence and is flexible and cares. I mean, all of us can come up with a list. Yeah. That's the person we want to be married to. That's the person we want to hire. That's the person we want to work for, right? And it turns out those aren't gifts. We're not born with them, right? We're born unable to really see, talk, lying in a pool of our own poop. That's the way we're born. <laughs> so somewhere along the way, we learned them. And they are attitudes. But the cool thing about attitudes is their skills. We can learn to be more honest. We can learn to have a better sense of humor. We can learn to be more flexible. They're skills. They're skills as important as using a slide ruler or a calculator, as skills as important as being able to draft if you're an architect. So why don't we learn those skills? And if we can learn them on purpose, we'll get better. And so when people ask about the Alt-MBA, the project that I'm spending the most time on, what do you teach? Like, give me the checklist, show me the syllabus. And my answer is, if content was your problem, you would have solved it already. Because just go to the library. Just search on YouTube. The answer is there. And that's why I reject all of those videos that say, three simple tips to do blank. Because that's the link bait thing that's going around my industry, is there's some shortcut 
that if you just knew this one simple trick, not only will you have a flat belly, but you'll be rich, right? Yeah. And no, it's, this is the long, difficult, never-ending path to slowly but surely do work that matters. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, who would have it any other way? How do you teach integrity? How do you teach, you know, other than just practice, how do you teach that? Well, number one, other than just practice, that's like, what's fish and chips other than fish and potatoes? Okay. Other than just practice is an important thing, okay. right? That's fair. Um, but it's not a value until it costs you something. That the definition of values are things that are hard to do in the breach. The only way you develop them is by being in the breach. The only way you know that you actually care about these things is that when you're in a situation when it's hard to do them, you do them anyway. Yeah. Or maybe you experience them on the other side and then you have empathy. Right. You want to change exactly. the cycle. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit, see if you'll go with me down this path. Um, you're a pretty private guy, and, and yet you're very public. So I would say maybe you're purposely public and you know, purposely guarded, but um, can you share with us, or just me and you, um, something about yourself that is not commonly known? Um, well, it should be commonly known that I wrestle with fear as often as anybody, but it probably isn't commonly known. That we would like to believe that people who are over there are fearless, right? That the person who did that and built this and, but I gotta tell you, I don't know, never met Tim Cook, but I'm guessing he's as afraid as you and me all the time. That that can be used as fuel and you can learn to dance with it or it can paralyze us. And I think I could figure out how to have a day or a week with not a lot of fear in it and I would hate that because I wouldn't be productive and I wouldn't be doing this work that I care about. But as long as I'm doing my work, I am wrestling every day with a narrative that I don't want to have show up that will not go away. And the big breakthrough for me was acknowledging I can't make it go away. And as soon as you say, welcome, good to have you here, you're my compass, the edges get a lot softer and it becomes easier to work with. So it's your indicator light, it's your signal Right. When you're feeling like this is terrible, you know it's a great idea. I know it has a shot at being a great idea. Yeah. It also has a shot at being a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that too. Talk, let's talk about, um, you told me once too, the person who fails the most wins. We don't need to repeat that um, lesson as great as it was. But um, talk to us about, talk to me about failing fast and, and maybe let's put it in the context of if I manage people, right? Right, because usually there's an intolerance for this, like, you know, how could you? You just wasted all this money. In my world, it's a video, so we usually get a creative brief, and, you know, it's very detailed, and the client tells us what they want, and it's a mixture of art and science where, you know, we're kind of commissioned, to, you know, sure. to paint a piece, and there's some latitude, but, like, what if you're that manager? How can you instill a culture of friendly failure and then how to, how to fix that? How to make it most efficient? 
So, Brian, can I give you some feedback? Yeah. Uh, the word feedback's horrible. The word advice is a lot better. Okay. That if we can go to somebody and say, I'm wrestling with this, do you have any advice for me? We actually want them to say something. Whereas if we go to someone and say, I made this video, do you have any feedback? What we really want them to say is, it's great. <laughs> right? So this lean management thing, this lean entrepreneurship thing has shown up. And everyone's all excited about it because it seems like such a great shortcut. Fewer meetings, faster moving. Lean is just a four-letter euphemism for a five-letter word. And the word is wrong. <laughs> that what it means to be lean is to be wrong. Wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong, way faster than everybody else is polishing. And if you can be wrong faster and faster and faster, you will get right faster than the competition. So what it means to be lean is to lower the water in the stream so you can see the rocks. And what it means to be a bureaucracy is to raise the water in the stream so it doesn't matter if there's rocks. Right. And the problem with raising the water is you waste a lot of water, and sooner or later, a rock's going to hit the boat. Whereas if you can lower it, have just one piece in the just-in-time system, and now it doesn't fit, and you know where the problem is, suddenly your whole system gets better because you exposed things that were wrong. We only can get there with enrollment. We can only get there if we agree to talk to each other honestly and respectfully and give each other advice on what's wrong and what's right. If you don't have that enrollment, it's an attack because we were taught to be perfect. So no one wants to go to work and hear that they're not perfect. But if you look at you know, an institution like Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group, Union Square Cafe, Shake Shack, on and on, the entire institution was built by Danny over 25 years on the idea of hospitality and learning from being wrong. Figuring out yet another way not to open a bottle of wine, yet another way not to serve scallops. And if you don't do that, then you're frozen. And the people who are frozen are stressed all the time because they know they're not perfect, but they're pretending they're perfect. And I like the studio lifestyle a lot better. So that's a great segue into customer service. Um, and Danny's a great example of that. I love Shake Shack myself. Um, what, what does good customer service look like or sound like? And maybe let's put it in the context of the company that is heavily reliant on this you know, phone feedback. You know, you've been on hold probably for 64 hours at a time. Right. Um, if you're in a business where you have phone customer service or some sort of interaction, give us some classic do's and don'ts. How would you improve the system? Okay, so first let's divide customer service into three categories. Category number one, the best customer service in many situations is customer service you do not need to do because you designed a product that doesn't break. You put shower handles in that make sense. You have a, a, a promise kept. Yeah. That should be seen as a worthwhile thing to invest in. Second sort of customer service involves proactively engaging with people before trouble hits, actually serving customers. Because if the customer wants to give you the benefit of the doubt, things will go much better. And we see this, for example, uh, in malpractice suits for doctors. That the doctors 
who get sued aren't the doctors who make the most mistakes. They're the doctors who are jerks. And so they forgot to do proactive customer service and care as a human. And then there's the third kind of customer service, which is how quickly can we get this interaction either over with, because it's costing both of us, or how beautifully can we recover it so they will trust us. So I gave a talk at IBM two months ago to their Watson AI group and talked about how AI is going to completely transform that other form of how do we make a cheaper customer service. And I don't want to repeat the whole talk here, but the short version is, first we outsourced to other countries, but really soon the computer is going to do customer service not after you call in, but in the moment. It will know, wait, this guy keeps pressing button number seven, but he should be pressing button number nine. I'll just tell him, press button number nine. That's way better than me being frustrated for 45 minutes than calling on the phone and blah, 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 blah. That our phone is now smart enough, and this happened to me eight weeks ago. There are three airports near where I live. My flight got canceled. The airline texted me at three o'clock in the morning saying your 6 a.m. flight is canceled. And that doesn't help me one bit. And my computer, and thus the airline, know that I have a speech. And they know what time my speech is. And they know where it's being held. And they know when all the other flights are. But what I had to do when I woke up was scramble, figure out there was another flight from a different airport that left four minutes after my flight, switch to that flight, do all these things that a computer should do. It should have just sent me a note at 5.55 saying, we know you thought you were leaving from Newark, but you're actually now leaving from LaGuardia because we knew all the things that are going on in your life and with your permission in advance, we fixed it, don't worry. Right? That's customer service. So that's going to happen. And so if your business is in the business of faster and cheaper, you're in trouble because once Watson or someone figures it out, they're just going to do it. So what Tony Shea did at Zappos is the opposite direction. He paid people extra to stay on the phone. The record, I believe, is seven hours and 45 minutes for one call. One person, one call, happily talking for seven hours and 45 minutes. Probably not about shoes. But if you are rewarding people to stay on the phone, you're going to create the other kind of customer service, which is, I like these people. That's expensive and a bargain. And the reason it's a bargain is that the brand value that comes from fixing a broken relationship is priceless. It lasts way longer than the value of actually doing it right the first time. Well said. Uh, It was a rant, though. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm on board. Um, Let's switch gears again a little bit. Um, There's a lot of talk about hustle. And a lot of people are out there crushing it and doing great work. And good for them. and yet, I can't help but feel a little bit of this, you know, f- you know, the acronym FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And also the tendency or temptation for comparisons. You know, we live in this Instagram world where we're, you know, looking at uh, the highlights of sure. highlight reels of other people's lives. And they're doing, they seem to be doing it better, faster, stronger. Um, can you talk about the hustle? Can you talk about sure. so FOMO? Yeah. Two topics there. Yeah. Quick audience poll. Who here likes to be hustled? <laughs> no one raised their hand. Human beings do not like to be hustled. Because what it means, the semantics matter, what it means to be hustled 
is that someone's getting something from you that you'd rather they weren't getting. Yeah. That's the opposite of this idea from Cat Hoke of a generous hustle. A generous hustle is when you show up with generosity to do something for the other person with no end in sight for you. Almost all of us like a generous hustle. Almost all of us want someone to coach us, encourage us, open the door for us, take us to where we need to go. So I'm a huge fan of the persistent, generous hustle. I have a real problem with people who are following some dummies playbook. They send you an email saying, what's your favorite color? And then you write back, and then the next thing they say, will you be my mentor? And then, right? Like, there's this method, which probably came from the, the pickup community years ago, and the, the idea that we could manipulate somebody else to help us get what we want, it doesn't have a place. It didn't have a place before. It doesn't have a place going forward because it doesn't scale. It doesn't build trust. It's not who we want to become. So my encouragement to people is work even harder than you thought you could work, but work on metrics that matter. And the metric that I think matters the most is trust. Who would miss you if you were gone? Who's expecting something from you that you can deliver? Who trusts you? And we get that way by being generous. So to pivot into your second question, the essential thing to understand about social media, as well as cable TV, is you are not the customer. You are the product. You are the product because if they can get you in a certain mental state, you will use it more. And if that mental state involves shame and inadequacy, you will be more likely to not only use it more, but to engage with the things that are being sold to you. Yeah. So the metrics that are exposed, the makeup virtual and real that is shown to make everyone else's life look better is designed to make you feel shamed and inadequate. And it is up to you if you want to play that game or not. But the people who play that game don't win that game. They just get to play the game and be sad all the time. <laughs> and we know this. We know that the more you use certain kinds of social networks in certain ways, the sadder you get. And all you got to do is look at 50 years of Hollywood to see the corrosive effects of that. Because between the Academy Awards and the makeup artists and the who has a bigger house in Beverly Hills and everything else, none of those people are happier than they were yesterday. Yeah. Right? And so if you're going to be in this world, accept that you're the product, not the customer, and use it for your own benefit and the benefit of the people you care about, not because some algorithm decided you would make them a profit. How do we avoid comparisons then, you know, with our coworkers or our friends or... Well, so status goes all the way back as far as we can measure. Yeah. Status uh, is at the heart of survival. You know, my dog, I, I talk about this in one of my upcoming podcasts. My dog gets along with almost every other dog except for Truman across the street. Baxter hates Truman. And <laughs> it... it we love the family across the street. They got two little kids, and Baxter attacked Truman. Wait, this is something you know. I don't. So you have a dog? I do have a dog. What kind of dog is it? He's a mutt from Puerto Rico. Okay, so you have one dog? One at a time. Okay. Well, we have two. We have two. We, we just rescued two new puppies. That's great. It's equal parts joy and pain right now. I is that what they're called? Joy and pain? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've. This is our third sort of third pound dog in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, Baxter's a great dog, but Baxter hates Truman. And the reason that Baxter hates Truman is because they're almost exactly the same size. So there's not enough, you know, no there's one too many knows, sheriffs in this No town. one knows who the alpha is. 
So the dog is confused. The, well, the dog has to settle scores, right? And like, watch any John Wayne movie. Here we are in you know, Newport. Watch any John Wayne movie. Yeah. He doesn't, John Wayne doesn't hassle people. He's clearly better than and clearly worse than. Yeah. It's only when there's that status problem yeah. that it occurs. Uh, I think the line is, this town isn't big, big enough, enough for, for the both of us. Yeah. Exactly. So that's Baxter and Truman's problem, too. So it goes all the way down to pound dogs to humans. So it's not going to go away, just like our fear is not going to go away. The question is, what are you going to do with it? If the person got the promotion that they didn't deserve, or has a car bigger than yours, or gets paid to do work that would embarrass you, you see it, you, will, you cannot help but see it. Then what are you going to do with it? What story will you tell yourself about it to decide? So there's a bunch of things I stopped keeping track of a few years ago. I don't read any of my reviews. It's not easy to do, but I don't, none of them, because I'm never going to write that book again. So how is their review going to help me? Because I'm never going to write that book again, right? <laughs> and then the other thing is, I don't pay attention to how my peers are doing. They're they also have more books than me. Fine, congratulations. Their YouTube videos, more than mine. Fantastic. Because it means someone learned something. And if I don't want to have that race with you, I can enjoy my day more. So many thoughts. Um, I'll try and harness them. Uh, you mentioned you won't write that book again. But if you were to uh, update one of your collections, what would be the book that you would update you know, for 2018, heading into 2020? And, and what do you think is missing from it? Well, I'm thinking hard because I've never caused myself to think about this. I've had, you know, the publisher says, it's the 10th anniversary of this. Will you please write an updated edition? And my take has been, well, then I would have to write an update every week because it keeps changing. So why don't I just encase it in amber and say, in this moment, this is what I thought about the world. And I'm not, Kurt, you know, Kurt Vonnegut could write circles around me, but he didn't rewrite his books either. It's okay. like, that's what happened. Um, I feel really badly about the way I marketed All Marketers Are Liars because I think it's a profound piece of work that people didn't get because the cover was terrible and the title was bad. My fault, completely. But you changed and updated the title, right? Yeah, but it wasn't enough and yeah. first impressions last a really long time. Yeah. I wrote a book called Survival Is Not Enough that took more time than any other book but Lynchpin. I wrote 200 pages that I had it delete toward the end. Charles Darwin wrote the foreword, which wasn't easy because he's dead. And I think... Congratulations. That, yeah. No copyright claim, though, so I was fine. Uh, I think there's a lot of lesson in that book, but it was 2001 and the world was a really different place then. So I haven't read it in a long time. It would be interesting to explore that, but it was more academic than I think most people want to read. Okay, so then let's go back to the dog dilemma. Okay. And let's extrapolate that or maybe make a metaphor out of it. If I'm that person, what's your dog's name again? Baxter. And Baxter doesn't get along with? Truman. Truman. I found out that Baxter was named after the dog from Anchorman, which embarrasses me. <laughs> so just, you wanted personal detail? Here we go. Yeah. Um, Baxter has one paw that's a different color than the other one. And it's his right paw. I think he's a little self-conscious about it. So I, want, I wanted his name to be Lefty, so everyone would look at his left paw and not notice his right paw is a different color. But Lefty, 
it didn't sound like it. So I decided it would be Lenin, right? Because then I could get like a whole geopolitical thing going on, L-E-N-I-N. And, um, but the problem is some people would think I was naming him after John Lennon. So then I went with Trotsky, because Trotsky was perfect. I got overruled, his name is Baxter. So what if I'm Baxter, yeah. and I work with a Truman, right? There's not enough, right. uh, what do I do? How, you know, how do I, I mean, I've got this job, I love working for that company. True but, story, yeah. ready? Lawyers care a lot about status in general, because law is all this, you know, we're gonna have a fight in court, one of us is gonna win. Two associates, one's a friend of mine, uh, same start date. Five years into it, it's time for them to stop sharing an office. So there's two new offices. One office is a foot bigger than the other one. Who gets the office that's a foot bigger? How do you figure it out, right? Well, if you're gonna do Rochambeau or something, then it's a game of luck and there's gonna be hard feelings. So my friend said, to the other associate, you take it. Take the bigger office. Because I'm not keeping track of that. And it changed so much about their dynamic, about what work was focused on. If it's important to the other person to be the alpha and you can do your work, do your work. Because it's the only way to adjudicate this status argument. Now, people will say, well, if I do that, then I'll always lose everything. I'll be a doormat. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you get to decide what your work is. And if it's important to you to win a, a, a turf war, a turf war that's visual on the status thing, then go fight that fight. But all the time and energy you're putting into that fight is time and energy you're not putting into your craft. And I think it makes way more sense to say, I made this, and to be proud of that and not worry about some metric that you didn't pick. Good stuff. Um, advice. Um, not feedback. <laughs> not feedback or criticism. It's different, right? Um, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? I, I just don't keep score of that. I'm ha I really want to give you a good answer that's not too glib but juicy. And, you know, okay, so there's a company called Learning Annex. Have you ever heard of them? Do they have them out here? Some of you have heard of them. It's not on my radar. Okay, so the idea was you to me but in real life in 1990-something. Okay. So you would go... They'd rent a school and have 20 classrooms, and at night you could take a course from this person or this person or this person. And this was early in the days of desktop publishing, and they came to me and said, will you teach the desktop publishing class? And I viewed it as, well, there's an audience, I could teach this, you made $49 a night or something. And then they would send someone to watch what you were doing, steal it, and then have lots of people teach the class you invented. And the advice I got from the person who brought me in was, if you really want to make it at this, it needs to be way more generic. It needs to be predictable. There needs to be an outline. There needs to be a syllabus. This is how teaching works. And start with a topic sentence, take people through the tactics, 
create a test, do that whole thing. And I've gotten that advice throughout my career about my speaking. When I invented the idea of slides with no words on them, really well-meaning people said, you can't do that. Your slides need to have bullet points on them. And, yeah. and, 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 and at every step along the way, I knew at my core that if I listened to that advice, I was doomed because everyone is better at fitting in than me. And so if I'm going to play that game, I'm going to lose that game. I'd rather play a game that might be a much smaller game where I have a chance to make the impact I want. Yeah, yeah that's good advice. Um, and it's difficult, right, to break the mold of the status quo or... Yeah, because then I got fired. <laughs> well, or, or if you say, I'm going to do it differently, you get the blame and the punishment. Yeah. Right? I mean... Or, um, can you talk about, uh, there's probably, raise your hand if you're a freelancer. Raise your hand if oh, you're a freelancer. Oh, there's way more freelancers than that. So let's start by defining the difference between entrepreneurs and freelancers. Yeah. Can you do that? And then give me your opinion on whether or not we should work for free sometimes. Because, Love it. Okay. You know, we get asked to do things on spec. Sure. You know, if we do agency work or if we, you know, yeah. show me first, prove the model. Uh, work for free or for an intern, you know, whatever yeah. the case. Let's so the freelancer-entrepreneur dichotomy came to me literally out of the blue, and I think it's one of my big contributions to the world, understanding this difference. And once people hear it, it makes their lives so much better. Freelancers, we get paid when we work. We have to show up in person. That's what we get paid for. Entrepreneurs get paid when they sleep. Entrepreneurs build something bigger than themselves. Entrepreneurs often use other people's money, but always are working to build something that they could sell if they wanted to. It's not them. You gotta be really clear which one you are in any given moment, because you'll get confused. Here's why you'll get confused. If you're a freelancer and you think you're an entrepreneur and you try to grow, what you're gonna do is hire someone to be you. Someone cheaper than you, therefore not as good as you, so you can keep the vig, the difference. And what you end up doing in a jam is hiring the best available person who works for free, which is you. And so you end up working for yourself all the time, frazzled, saying you're building something big, when actually what you're doing is a workaholic freelancer. That's a bad idea. <laughs> that what freelancers ought to do if they want to grow is raise their price. Get better clients. A freelancer with better clients is happier, more productive, and more profitable than a freelancer with bad clients. But that's the work, if you're a freelancer, the seeking out of better clients. How do we get better clients? You talked a lot about picking your clients. Yes. How do you do that? Well, let me finish the entrepreneur thing, and then I'll yeah. come back to that. So the entrepreneur thing is, if you're an entrepreneur, your only job is to hire someone to do your job. Every time you invent a job, hire someone else to do it. If you can keep doing that, that's how you become Larry Ellison. That's how you become someone who builds an entity. Larry Ellison doesn't code at Oracle. He doesn't make sales calls at Oracle. He doesn't clean the building. What does Larry Ellison do? He just keeps inventing things for people to do and hiring them to do it, right? And so if you're an entrepreneur and you're not doing that, well, I hope you're enjoying your day because you're allowed to build a job because that's what you've done is built a job. But entrepreneurial work is that creation of the next cycle. Okay. So if you're a freelancer, how do you get better clients? The way you get better clients is by telling a true story that resonates with what better clients want to buy. So Frank Lloyd Wright, 
famously designed falling water in 15 minutes on the back of a paper bag. One of the most iconic homes in the United States. And he turned to the client and he said, if you wish, I will build this for you. He didn't say, let's have a focus group and meeting and sanding off the edges and make it a fun place to live. He said, if you wish, I'll build this for you. Frank Lloyd Wright had great clients. Why were his clients great clients? Because he was the Frank Lloyd Wright. And they felt like it was worth all the suffering and expense to have a famous architect because that's what they wanted to buy, a house from a famous architect. Some of them wanted his actual art, but most of them wanted to be able to say, and Frank Lloyd Wright designed it. So that's one way you get a client like that. Another way you get a client like that is, let's say you're an ad agency. There are lots of good clients who need to be able to tell their boss, we hired a firm that won a lot of awards. Or we hired a firm that used to work for our competitor, but we got them to work for us instead. There are art directors who want to hire a photographer who's extremely difficult to work with. Because if they're a diva, they must be great. And so, I happen to know photographers who are divas on purpose because being a diva gets them better clients. I mean, so we go down the list. What story is this person telling themselves about this transaction we are about to have? Right. And back to the engineering mindset, if you think your job is to do your job, then what you're going to do is keep lowering your price and keep working harder. And what you're going to get are clients who don't want to pay a lot and want a freelancer who's going to work really hard. But those aren't good clients. There's just a lot of them. And that's a race to the bottom. I think it's a race to the bottom, and you might win. <laughs> a scary proposition. I, I was curious when you started talking about entrepreneurship. So are you building your company? Are you building it to sell it someday? I, I, know, I heard that you are not part of the Alt-NBA. You're not teaching, per se. Other people who are talented or as talented or more talented or whatever are teaching it. Are you preparing or, or treating, at least, is that the mindset to eventually at least have the option to sell it? Absolutely not. But let me, five minutes ago I said, you got to decide if you're a freelancer or an entrepreneur at any given moment. Yeah. So Mondays between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock, I'm an entrepreneur. I made that part up. But, and the rest of the time I'm a freelancer. I'm on stage. No one wrote my content. If you read a blog post that I wrote or listen to a podcast I did, it's me. There's nobody behind the scenes. I have zero staff when I do my freelance work. Zero. I make every slide. I do, that's my craft. When I thought about the Alt-MBA, I said, what would happen if I acted like an entrepreneur in the sense of I'm not allowed to say I'll do that part of the work. I just have to find extraordinarily talented people, give them the freedom, gain enrollment, and help them get to where they're going. Yeah. So the discipline of the Alt-MBA for me it's not that I'm trying to build an entity that I could sell. It's that I'm trying to build an entity that scales in a really juicy personal way that I as a human could never scale. And that dis every time something shows up for the Alt-MBA that I could do and I alone could do, we take it out because that's not allowed. Well, so it sounds like maybe you're saying it's a personal decision, but like, I guess what I was getting to the next follow-up question was, should we be running our businesses, you know, thinking about processes? There's a guy on... Uh, uh, MSNBC, Marcus Lemonis, who's famous for talking about... He has about a billboard on my commute to New York City, yeah. and I've never seen him speak, but I've just seen his billboard. Yeah, I love, I love his show. It's, it's fun. But he talks about you know, people and process and, and product. Um, 
is, is that what we should be doing? Is, we should be building our businesses as if, and I've heard Tony Robbins say it too, you should, if you're not building a business that you can't eventually sell, you're doing it wrong. Well, wrong is such a loaded term, right? So the E-Myth Revisited is the classic of this work on the business, not in the business. That there is a model of entrepreneurship that says every job should be done by the least skilled available person so you can pay them the least amount. That if you can just build a business with all of those building blocks, we are never overpaying for a different task, at some point you will extract maximum value. But my overarching belief is culture doesn't exist to make capitalism better. Capitalism exists to make our culture better. Use it when you need it, but it, we're not here for capitalism. So maximizing your profit isn't the goal. Maximizing your life and your impact is the goal. Right. So what's missing from Tony's sentence, which he probably meant to say, is you're doing it wrong if your goal is to maximize your profit. I agree with that. I just don't understand why maximizing your profit is the goal. Okay, that's fair. Uh, we're at about 8, 11, 8, 12, so we've got about 15 minutes left. This is and then the stuff. babysitter is going to go, and I have to yeah. get back. Okay. You guys liking this so far? I forgot you were here. <laughs> you guys are great. Thank you. You asked me about working for free. Do you want me to riff on that for two Please, minutes? Please, sh should I be working for free? So freelancers face a dilemma all the time, which is that some people, some organizations, tell themselves the story that they should acquire certain kinds of work for free. They deserve it for free, or they're offering an opportunity for free. And that the only way to work with that sort of person is to do it for free. Yeah. RFP is a popular acronym, right? You, you send in this proposal, request for proposal. Well, that's a... Okay. I, let me address that, too. I'm okay. talking about the zoo needs an ad campaign. And so the zoo says, get famous, Mr. Creative, Ms. Creative, do our ad campaign for free. That's one kind of thing. The other thing you're saying is there's a purchasing agent who's figured out that by having a carrot of money, they can get you to do a whole bunch of preliminary work first, yeah. bidding against all the other freelancers. That one's way more interesting to me, so I'll answer that one first. Yeah. Um, if you're answering RFPs and you do not have a significant technical competitive advantage or an asset that others don't have, you're in a race to the bottom. And therefore, if you want to be a productive freelancer, you must do work that isn't specced in an RFP. You just say, I don't answer RFPs. I wait till someone wants what I do. I am a category of one. If you need my kind of work. You know, Jill Greenberg, the wonderful photographer, doesn't answer RFPs. If you want Jill Greenberg, there's only one Jill Greenberg. That meant she had to develop a photographic style that was hers. And the only person you can get it from is her. So it's harder. Yeah. but it's also better. In terms of the other one about the zoo, the question is really simple, which is, will doing this work for free either give me karma, so even if no one knows I did it for free, I'm glad I did, because free world, just do it. Sure. Or, from a capitalist point of view, does it give me a credential and a, a piece of my portfolio that becomes part of my story that I can tell to somebody else right. who will pay me for it? But the chances that the person who hired you for free is now going to pay you money are very, very low. Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at, too, is how should we be measuring that success, right? And it's not just all, 
about the money, right? Sometimes there are other valuable things, whether it's reputation management yeah. or The first 150 experience. speeches I gave, I paid to give them. I had a PR firm that would reach out to organizations when I was running Yo-Yo Dine. It was our only marketing, was me being on stage. And it was like, do you need an internet speaker? And it was 1994, everyone needed an internet speaker. Didn't get paid to give these speeches, but if I hadn't given those 150 speeches, I wouldn't be me. Yeah. And you, I think you wrote recently about the comparison of, you know, if you're a guest on Krista Tippett's show, for example. Or Oprah, yeah. Yeah, should you be paid for that? Right. Um, and I guess the answer is it depends what you, what you value or you see the value in it. Probably. Well, it, but back to my point about the zoo. If you show up on Oprah, and if you're an author, or if you show up on Krista's thing and you're a spiritual leader, there's a, an idea piracy occurred. Your idea went into the world for free. Yeah. But your obscurity problem was just solved. Yeah. And we, most of us have an obscurity problem, not a, privacy pro a piracy problem, yeah. right? So it, once everyone knows your idea, you do better, not worse. I agree. And this is a conversation or, or a wrestle that I have with clients and partners and collaborators all the time. Sure. Including this hotel, for example. Like, hey, you have an empty hotel ballroom. Uh, I can actually fill that ballroom for you. Uh, and yet they, they see me as an ATM. <laughs> they want to come and take money out. Well, that's what they do for a living. Sure. But at the same time, I'm saying, I bring something to the table. You know, my people have people. You know, they have conferences of their own. They have business right. meetings and off-site meetings. And, hey, don't you think that if I bring a few hundred people here, they'll, this will get on their map? And so uh, sometimes I think people are very short-sighted just looking for that quick return on the investment in 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, I think, so in B2B selling, it's really important to understand that um, the person you're selling to isn't spending their own money. And the person you're paying isn't getting to keep the money you're giving them. So the only question that happens in B2B is, what will I tell my boss? And if you can't answer that question in a way that makes them happy, you can't do business with them. So what's probably happening in an institution with hundreds or thousands of people is someone you will never meet made a rule. And the person you're dealing with isn't being unreasonable. They are doing what they believe to be their job. Yeah. So the challenge of engaging as a generous hustle is to find someone who is in a flexible enough institution that they can receive your gift. Yeah, so maybe what you're saying is you might be talking to the wrong person. Yeah, almost yeah. certainly. Yeah, good, I like it. Um, we've all been stuck before. Yeah, all the time. Uh, talk to us about how to get unstuck. Um, you know, sometimes we're stuck in a bad relationship, or we're stuck in a job that we hate, or I can think of a thousand different ways that we're stuck, but talk yep. about getting unstuck. Well, I, I guess I could share two bits of advice. One is, we get stuck when we are more afraid of change than we are of staying still. So we say, this is better than that alternative. There are two fears battling with each other. Well, the problem with that is the, the being uncomfortable or the bad part has to get so bad sometimes. Exactly. So what you end up with, if you accept it, yeah. is a life of always, whatever the next thing you're stuck on, of always being unhappy. Because you, you're just stuck until finally the unhappiness tilts over. 
It's sort of like, why do they wait till the union is on strike before they settle the contract? Why do they wait until the government is shut down? Why don't they just have the negotiation three days earlier and skip the pain? Yeah. Well, it's because the same story is going on in our head. <clears throat> so the discipline here is to realize this isn't a one-time thing. This is a lifetime thing. How do I experience the pain in advance so I don't have to live through it? How do I do scenario planning sufficient to cause me to make mature, interesting decisions before I have to actually live through all the pain? That's <laughs> part A, difficult part of human nature. Yeah. But most of the time we're stuck as professionals and as creatives. We're stuck because we've raised the stakes too much on the thing we're, you know, I, I want to write this book. This book will change my life. I can't write chapter one. I'm completely stuck. And we want chapter one to be perfect. Well, the way around it is to find other tasks to do that don't have so much import. So instead of writing chapter one, write 20 blog posts. But when you're done with 20 blog posts, you could then reveal to yourself that that's chapter one. Yeah. So it's, it's small incremental steps. Exactly. It's not looking at the thousand mile journey exactly. one step at a time. Okay, that's, that's good advice. Here, you know, the, the short version of this is if you're self-employed, you almost certainly have the world's worst boss. I'm going to let that sink in for just a minute. <laughs> yeah, because we are our own worst critic. We're, we're hard on ourselves. And we don't set up systems to enable ourselves to succeed because we're paralyzed because we're afraid. Well, that's a good transition into shame. Oh, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about what Brene Brown has written a lot about, yep. guilt versus shame. And let's talk about this sabotage that we do when we are our own worst critic. Um, and how, if we fall onto the wrong side of the fence, you know, guilt, Brene writes, is about feeling bad about what I've done. And she says shame is about saying, I am bad, right? right. She and I are using different terminology. Okay. She's certainly been in this far deeper than I have, but I've been talking about it a long time, too. Uh, but what I want to uncover yeah. here is, is, the, is the sabotage right. that we do on ourselves, right? Well, but let's agree that shame is one of the basic human emotions. It's one of the earliest emotions we experience. It has been around forever. It goes straight to a key part of our brain. And it's super effective. It, our culture, all cultures, have a significant element of shame to force other people to comply with the culture so the culture becomes the culture. People like us do things like this. And I believe we're naive to say there will be no shame. There's the shame of the three-year-old who wets his pants just on his way to nursery school, right? That there's shame in lots of places. For me, there's a huge distinction between shaming behavior and shaming people. And society can only exist when we say to people, how dare you? When we say to people, that behavior is shameful. People like us don't do things like this. What gives you the right? Right? But we yeah. say those things to people yeah. to get them to, to keep them from destroying our society if they're, you know, have selfish goals. But shaming people, you will never amount to anything. You are a loser. You are a bad person. That crosses every line because what it does is it, it's the dream killer. It's the thing that prevents a human from seeing possibility 
and working their way out of it. So if you think about Kat and her work on prison reform, too often we say to people, you're a bad person and we're locking you up and we'd like to lock you up forever because you don't deserve anything. As opposed to saying that behavior is not allowed in our world, we need to correct for that behavior and once we've made our point, you should be welcomed back with our encouragement so you don't behave that way anymore. And I think the same narrative is in our head, that when we commit a faux pas, when we engage with something in the world that doesn't work because it was shameful behavior, I sure hope we learn from that because otherwise we're sociopaths. But we shouldn't take away from that, therefore I am a bad person, therefore I will never amount to anything. And that story we tell ourselves, that narrative is so corrosive. And the problem and the thing that ashames me the most about being a marketer, using the word shame, is that marketers use this to make a profit. And politicians use it to win a point. And that's unacceptable to me. Yeah, I think we've all felt this imposter syndrome, right? Like, I don't deserve to be up here. What am I doing here? You know, and, and when I think about the self-limiting beliefs or the the self-sabotage because we are our own worst critics. I feel like, personally, that's what gets me stuck a lot of the time. Um, so, so how do we overcome that? Maybe there's just one more. I want to go one more step with this. How do I don't know if you're going to like my tactical step, but here you go. You don't have to do this for a living. You decided to do it for a living. If you're going to enroll in that journey, it's worth accepting that you are playing a role. No one thinks you are really like this in real life. I hope not. No one thinks I am really like this, quote, in real life. Authenticity is this made-up idea. There's no such thing as authenticity. There might be consistency. Consistency, meaning do you act that way when no one's looking? That's really important to trust. But authenticity, that this is who you were born to be, that's ridiculous. You're playing a role. You wore certain clothes today. You shaved or didn't shave. You did things because you wanted people to see a thing and get a result. So... The good news is we're not coal miners. The good news is we don't have to do some horrible task involving life and limb. We get to do this. The cost is we're playing a role and we're putting on a performance. And I get that you or I feel like an imposter. Boy, I feel terrible for you. <laughs> but dance with it because it's your job. And that's what it is to be a professional, not an amateur. The amateur says, I can only do it if I feel like it. The professional says, this is my work, and I'm going to do it despite the fact that I don't feel like it. Pushing through. Doing it's the not, hard work. There's no pushing because there's no other side. It's chopping wood, carrying water, doing the work. That's your job. So can we end this talk? Do we have to? <laughs> I'm afraid so. We're going to run out of film. Probably. <laughs> Um, so can we end this by me telling you a little story? Please. And sharing with you the best advice I've ever gotten. Okay. Uh, and it happened to come from you. Oh, all right. And uh, fair warning, uh, I'm reluctant to share this a little bit because uh, it's personal. But I think it has enough value um, that it's worth sharing. So I will tell you a little bit about uh, 
my background and some personal things um, in order to tell this story. So, um, fun fact about me, um, I, I'm adopted. And my entire life, uh, I had a great childhood, but I always had this desire to find my birth parents. And I wanted to know uh, who I was, my roots, you know, where did I come from? Um, and did you see that movie with Nicole Kidman and the guy from Slumdog Millionaire? It was called Lion. Um, I, it was on the seat next to me on a plane, so yeah. I know it without the words. It's a really good movie. Uh, if you've seen that movie, maybe you can understand a little bit how I felt. I felt a lot like him in, in that in, there was just, I could, can't describe it to someone who's not in the situation, but I, I had this burning desire to find out um, my roots. So you know. hard. Yeah. Um, and as a teenager, I would uh, I petitioned the courts for my birth records, yeah. and I got denied over and over and over again. And um, that only just fueled my fire. I felt, sure. I felt it was unfair. I felt kind of violated. Like, how dare you hold, withhold from me what's my, my right to have? Yeah. Um, and it was very difficult. Um, flash forward a number of years, um, around, uh, well, when the internet became more pervasive and um, public documents became more available, um, I, I found my birth mother. And it was the most amazing thing. Oh. And um, I sent her this letter and I wrote, uh, and included a picture, by the way, of our family. So we have four amazing kids, I'm very happily uh, married. I've got a great family. And I sent this great family photo with a, you know, wearing our best. And I wrote a note that said something like, um, uh, you know, this may come to a shock, but uh, I, I found you. And I just wanted to say thank you. I want to say thank you for doing probably the most selfless thing anyone could ever do, wow. which is you know, a shot at a better life for me. That's so generous, yeah. And, and so I sent that letter, and it also said, if you want contact, you know, I w would be more than happy to have a phone call or come meet you. I'm thrilled that I found you after this, you know, 25-year, 30-year search. Um, and I got a letter back. And just to give you a little context, you know, when you're adopted, your mind goes to the edges of the extreme. Of course. Right? You, yeah. you think, you know, is my dad Steve Jobs? Like, is there, <laughs> is there some inheritance waiting for me someplace that I should know about? Or is my mom or dad some famous, you know, rock musician or, or athlete? And so it goes that way. And, and it also goes to the, the other side of the spectrum, yeah. which is, am I the product of a violent crime? Right. And then everything in between. And so I would say the not knowing is the most difficult part. Um, anyway, so I did get a letter back, uh, and it was from this a very proper, looked like a proper organization. It was a, it was a some sort of firm, and I thought, oh, I, I, Steve Jobs probably is my dad. Like, it was like a Dumbledore is bequeathing, you know, the uh, yeah. the resurrection stone. But this and whole the, thing sounds so wrenching. So I opened it. And it's, it said, you know, uh, dear Mr. Elliot, uh, we're in receipt of your letter. Uh, and our client uh, does 
admit that she is your biological mother but wants no contact. And uh, this is our official putting you on notice that if you have any further correspondence, we will not hesitate to file a, a uh, oh, I'm so sorry, restraining order against you. And it, it was a sucker punch. Yeah. I was devastated. I was crushed. I mean, I was pissed, too. Um, but I was crushed. And um, it, it was very difficult. And, um, and I probably kind of felt sorry for myself for a little bit. Um, and this was right around the time that I quit a perfectly good job and left the studios. I was at Universal Pictures for a while, and, and I decided to start this production company. And it was a time uh, right around 2008, 2009, where you, you wrote Tribes. It was the first time that I reached out to you. Uh, it was a very difficult time. You know, the recession, we were in the, in the heart of the recession. We were knee-deep. I was struggling to keep my family afloat. Um, you were very nice. I reached out to you, but you, you, know, you rejected me, too, a couple of times. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know who you are. You know, oh. I'm not interested in coming. I'm sorry. No, that's OK. I'm getting to the point of this, this lesson, uh, this I'm here this today. Well, so I persisted. I was, I was tenacious. I didn't give up. And um, I kept chipping away and, and tried to communicate. And you were very receptive and very nice and, and gracious. And finally, about a year and a half later, you agreed to come to one of these meetings for the first time. This was like 2009, heading into 2010. And, um, and so... You came, and you sat down with me, and you talked, and you were a human being, and, um, and you took the time. And do you remember what you told me? you remember that advice that you gave me? I'm, it's out of context. Yeah. I'm really sorry. I, I don't expect you to remember. That's OK. Um, but I told you about how I was struggling, and how I had this great idea to, to start this new web series, this, this show called Behind the Brand, where you know, I, was, I was making it very selfishly, because I actually desperately needed to know how to be successful, like right away, because we, I was struggling to keep my business afloat and sure. everything that was happening. And, and you said to me, uh, I'll never forget it. You said, Brian, um, there's no Prince Charming in this story. There's no rescue boats. No one's coming. You know, stop waiting to get picked. The Today Show's not calling. CNN is not going to call you. You're not going to get scooped up. Um, waiting to get picked, waiting to get rescued. Um, and that just pierced my heart like no other. And, and I, in that moment, my whole, my whole point of view changed. I realized that I was playing the victim. I felt like one. I mean, rightfully so in some regards. But what you told me that no one's coming no one's going to arrest me. I need to save myself. Change that point of view into being like a survivor, right? To continue to push forward, to not give up. Um, I changed my life. Wow. I want to thank you for that. Well, don't thank me. This is you. So, so there is a bit of a happy ending. Um, There's more than a bit of a happy ending. You have a happy family. You've 
doing incredibly generous, productive work that's seen by millions of people around the world. Well, there's that, but there's, so I also persisted, and, and I didn't assume that because I failed once, I would fail again. I, I decided maybe there's an, another outcome. I kept looking for my dad, and I found him. Um, and last year, uh, me and my whole family got to meet my dad, who was much more receptive, and figured that one day I would call, and I found out that I have two younger sisters, and we all got to meet in this big happy family reunion. Um, turns out we're Jewish, <laughs> on my dad's side. <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess that's maybe a good place to end. Um, <laughs> Bada boom. So just want to say a final thank you for um, coming to be a part of this. Um, if you like this, I think we're going to try to do it again. Um, thank you for coming. Please, um, you know, I really want to express my gratitude for the partners and sponsors who came tonight, um, who took their time to set up their things. Events like this can't be possible, couldn't, wouldn't be possible without the help and support of them, without you moving your bones and, you know, getting a ticket and coming here. So please take the time to investigate and get to know the folks that are here. Um, thank you very much for coming, and good night. Good job.